Welcome to the 10th episode of Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Paul Holzer. Paul, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. I've been a developer for nearly 20 years. Currently, I'm stationed at a container store in Dallas-Fort Worth area, doing all kinds of different applications that assist the store employees in doing what they need to do. Point of sale, we have a nice closet design tool, order processing machinery in the stockroom. It's really rewarding, and more than any other job that I've had, I kind of get the sense that what we do at the container store really does matter and make a difference to the bottom line. So that's just a real neat feeling. I bumped into you a couple years at a DFW Scrum meeting, and Uh I know we've kind of run in the same circles in general, kind of bumping into each other off and on. But I remember one of those meetings specifically was you were giving a presentation on a Java Quick Check library that you had developed, and you were kind of outlining that to other developers and other people involved in the development process, like Scrum Masters and business owners kind of showing the ways to think about it. Do you want to kind of elaborate on what brought you into writing a quick check for Java? Yeah, I guess to take it way, way back, I was first introduced to JUnit around year 2000 or so, and I started exploring it by sort of writing post-facto tests for some code that I was writing for an article, because I thought, if I'm going to write code for this article and someone's going to download it or try to type it in or whatever, it had better work the way that I advertised that it did. Prior to that, I had seen people on my project use those low-level micro-tests to great effect. They just seemed a lot more confident in their code and didn't seem to have nearly as many defects as I was having in my stuff. And so at that moment, I kind of got hooked on that style of testing and JUnit in particular. And I was really motivated to, at some point or another, contribute to JUnit. I wrote a couple of things to go in the JUnit add-ons project. And I guess at some point or another, when JUnit 4.4 maybe was released, there was this idea of theories. And I thought, well, you know, theories, that sounds like kind of an interesting style of test that I'm not really sure what to do with yet. And around that time, too, I started thinking a little bit more about getting interested in other ways of expressing computation other than what I was used to seeing in Java and C++ before that and Perl before that. And so I started to sort of dip my toes in the waters of functional languages. And at some point or another, I picked up Real World Haskell, the O'Reilly book, and kind of started working through it. And I came to understand that a tool that they had mentioned called QuickCheck bore a lot of similarity to what JUnit theories were trying to accomplish. Sort of this idea that rather than with test-driven development where you sort of build up your designs example by example, where your examples are couched in the form of individual tests, theories and sort of properties that is the language that QuickTech uses to describe these, it's sort of a way of expressing laws, if you will, you know, certain invariants maybe that a bit of code should exhibit. A property that answers that a function gives should exhibit that may not be obvious from just looking at a bunch of examples. The way that I like to talk to people about what a theory is, is imagine something like the prime factors kata that we're probably used to seeing by now. So this idea that you can sort of build up a routine that spits you back the prime factors of a positive integer. And you do this example by example, saying, all right, well, If I give you two, I'm going to get two back as a factor. And if I give you three, I'm going to get three back as a factor. 
if I give you four, I'm going to get two and two and so forth. You build up confidence in your algorithm by proving example by example that your code gives the answers that you would expect for a certain set of inputs. But none of those tests really tell you some interesting things that the solutions should exhibit. Number one, you definitely make sure that all of the factors that are answered are prime. You can sort of eyeball it for all of your examples, but for larger inputs, that's harder to do because it's harder to just kind of spot a number and go, oh yeah, that's prime. You want to certainly prove that when you multiply all those factors back together, you get your original number. And you want some confidence that the answers that are given are unique. For every different integer, you have a unique factorization. And those are the kinds of things that theories or quick check properties can help you to demonstrate for your code. And I thought, one of the neat things about quick check in Haskell is that you specify these properties and quick check sort of comes up with examples for you at random. Also sort of increasing in size, whatever that means, for a given data type as it goes on. And the theories runner in JUnit really didn't have that. The way that the theories runner decides what inputs to feed to the theories are by scraping annotated fields off of the test class called data points. And I just undertook to try to write something using the theories mechanism that would allow a random generation of valid inputs for theory parameters, much like QuickCheck for Haskell does. And so JUnit QuickCheck is what I came up with. It really kind of is bound to JUnit and the theories runner. But there are plenty of other options, I guess, if you will, for property-based testing of Java apps. There's ScalaCheck. There's something called Java QuickCheck, which I think is more about the generators of values rather than the mechanism of running tests. But that's fine. I just found that I got allowed out of trying to come up with sort of the JUnit answer for property-based testing. I know it was a little bit rambling and long-winded, but that's kind of my motivation for contributing back to JUnit in some way and how QuickTech tended to be that thing that I wanted to give back. How did you find response to that from what you could tell being an open source project? Did you find a lot of people kind of picked up and ran with that and started using it since, because I think I saw, saw you demonstrated about four years ago now, because it was really before Scala and Clojure and everything else kicked off with their versions of property testing. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I've done with my open source projects is I haven't been much of a horn tutor as far as, hey, here's this thing, come and check it out. And I guess I'm not very good at community building when it comes to that kind of stuff. So I've just kind of left it out there and see who might pick up on it. Every now and then, someone on GitHub will star the project, and that feels good. I do get a little bit of feedback in terms of, hey, you know, it'd be really nice if we could generate, I don't know, some Java library type that we may not support yet, like UUIDs or whatever. So it's good to get that kind of feedback. I don't know how widespread its use is, because I guess I just haven't really actively promoted it. But when I do get feedback, it tends to be pretty positive, and that just feels good. I guess I didn't undertake these kinds of things to just become famous with it or anything. It's more just about, here's something that I enjoy doing, and if other people find it useful, that's awesome too. Obviously, welcome any feedback and contribution if someone's willing to make a contribution as well. I was asking, because I kind of had noticed on your GitHub site that you've been updating it fairly recently and relatively regularly and making updates and improvements, that it looked like it was still alive and being worked on, even though those others had come out. 
Yeah, it's one of those things that I can make time for it when I get motivated. I guess the thing that I'm really interested in doing now, one thing that Haskell Quick Check does that JUnit Quick Check does not, is that it has this capability of when it finds an input for which the property fails to be met, it can sort of rerun with a shrunken input. Like imagine you had a property that you wanted to prove for lists, and maybe the property failed for some reason for a list of length 10. Well, what QuickCheck would do is it would pick up on that failure and say, okay, let's try to run this again with successively smaller inputs, and as long as it keeps failing, then keep trying with smaller inputs until you find the smallest input for which the failure doesn't happen. What you get from that is a little bit of extra context about, let's boil this down to the simplest case that we might be able to diagnose what actually went on. JUnit QuickTech has the capability of sort of, as the parameter generation goes on, successively increasing the size of the parameter, but it doesn't right now have the capability to sort of shrink back on a failure to try to reduce to the simplest possible case. And I'm kind of at a point right now where I think I would need to take a deeper dive into the actual Haskell QuickCheck source to sort of understand how it decides when and how to do shrinkage of parameters to properties. But it's not one of those things at this point, I guess, where someone's beating down my door wanting the feature. It's just more of when I feel like I want to pursue it, I'll just go and do it. This is not to say that I don't welcome a community of users. It's just that I guess I haven't been very diligent about keeping that community up and running, other than just making updates to the project when I have some time. I was kind of thinking about it just more from the perspective of you're bringing these ideas back into Java proper. Mm-hmm. and continuing to bring that idea and continuing to work on it. So right. instead of kind of just saying, well, you know what? There's there's a couple different quick checks available, and you could jump yeah, out. Yeah, go use Scala check, right? Why not? That's pretty good. But it sounds like part of this is just your curiosity and figuring out how to handle these problems as well. It is. One of the things that I've always sort of been attracted to as far as the Java language is this capability of reflection and interrogating bits of a program for interesting bits of metadata. And that was one of the draws for me of trying to do a quick check for Java. There had been other attempts, but I wanted something that really sort of had a nice affinity with what JUnit was already offering. And it turned out to be trickier than you would think. Introspecting a theory method to look for its parameter types, okay, it's easy to figure out, here's a parameter of type int. Well, I can generate a random int to satisfy that parameter. No big deal, right? Or any of the other Java primitives. When you get to lists that are generic, it's a little trickier because you need to be able to say, okay, well, yeah, I need a list, but then I also need things to populate the list. And so sort of that unholy intersection of reflection and generics, thought it was kind of an interesting thing to try to solve. I guess getting to your point about wanting to bring some of this stuff back into core Java, part of me wants to do that, yeah. I think in a lot of ways, we. this is not to denigrate newer JVM languages like your Scala's and your group, because they're obviously really great and you definitely serve a purpose. But I think part of the challenge for me and part of the thing I want to tell programmers of any stripe is that you really need to try to really push the envelope of what you can do in a particular language. And I think that core Java programmers really don't try to stretch themselves nearly as much as they should in terms of coming up with expressive, fluent, but 
as boilerplate free as possible APIs. And so that's something I like to try to do with my open source projects and in my daily work is sort of look outward and see what else is going on out there in the programming world and bring this message back to people who may just want to stick with core Java that there's more possible than just your basic getters and setters kind of stuff. And you really should. You should try to push the boundaries of what your language can do. And the answer may end up being, well, yeah, maybe we should roll with Groovy or Scala or Clojure or whatever. But going through the exercise of really stepping outside the conventions, I guess, of the language and trying different things is definitely worth doing. You said something, and it seemed really subtle there, was you were talking about bringing those back in, exposing it to people who would probably not necessarily venture out. So is that a lot of the reason you like sticking with Java instead of going off and doing some of these things other languages? Is there that kind of bringing back and showing, look, you have these ideas out there, but you can bring them back in and not have to change your languages, but still be able to take advantage of that language that you know and are familiar with, but bring different ways of thinking about it. Is that... Yeah, I think my experience has been that when I do that reaching out and exploring functional languages or Node or what have you, I feel like it just makes you a better programmer no matter what environment you do your work in day to day. I kind of approach this stuff from the perspective of being a lifelong student. I just enjoy learning new things and I feel like in our profession especially, you really do need to sort of exercise the muscles, if you will, of trying out new technologies and learning different ways of expressing computation. Knowledge is our currency, and our ability to pick up on new trends and technologies is just invaluable in and of itself. But then there's also the idea of, hey, you know, maybe this thing that I learned over here while I was checking out Scala, maybe it'll help me write more concise, more expressive Java, or more expressive Ruby, or what have you. Just sort of having different ways of thinking about computation in general, I feel like is just a valuable thing to try. And that kind of extends beyond just learning a new language or a new web framework or whatever. One thing that I've gotten into recently, I've become something of a Coursera addict, there's so much information out there available for people who want to learn something new. And the MOOCs like Coursera and edX have all this great content out there about just about any subject or area of study that you can think of. And it's available to you for free. And all you have to do is reach out and go get it. And my sincere hope is that programmers especially, but people in general, will just afford themselves those opportunities to stretch their minds. In your previous comment, too, it almost, and you kind of touched on it there as well, was not only that you're the lifelong student, but you're almost a lifelong teacher. I know there are a lot of people who go off and learn Scala and take some of those lessons from that or any other language that they go off and learn and say, you know what, I'd really rather be working in this language. Now that I've learned this other language, I start to see all the warts in my current language. Sure. Whether or not I'm in Java or C++ or C Sharp or Ruby or right. whatever language it is. Right. But you're sticking there, you're sticking with Java, and you're bringing back those ideas back into Java land. And so there was kind of that conversation around bringing those functional ideas back into Java in a community that readily will admit that their language hasn't kind of 
grown that much in the past number of years, and they're starting to catch up a lot more than they had been. The language doesn't do nearly as much as it could to help you as far as one of the things we prize in functional languages is minimizing the amount of mutable state that we carry around in our programs. And there's some linguistic facilities in Java to sort of help you. I mean, final fields, I guess, but there's no algebraic data types. There's no pattern matching, kind of like you have in Scala. But that said, there's nothing to stop you from attempting to minimize the amount of mutable state that you carry around in your Java apps. And when you try to do that, you start to reap some benefits in terms of your programs become easier to reason about. I'll be honest with you, I really enjoy working on the Java platform. It's sort of, there's two or three pieces of software that really have sort of won my heart over (laughs) in my career. Perl was one of them. I'm not ashamed to say it. There I said it. I liked Perl back in the day. JUnit was one of them. And Java really just kind of opened my eyes to a new way of thinking about programming in the large and thinking about ways of, now that we have this idea of classes and objects, well, how do I assign responsibility to each of these things? What sort of responsibility assignment makes sense? And Java, for me, really sort of got out of the way and helped me think about those things more clearly. So yeah, I guess I do my day-to-day work in Java, but a lot of my open source work is done in Java as well. Just I've just really enjoyed working on that platform. I think the the tooling is world-class. I've probably become, I don't know if there's such a thing as being too dependent on your IDE, but when I encountered IntelliJ IDEA back in 2002, I just thought, oh my God, this is great. It almost just knows what I want to do and helps me do it. Yeah, I guess there's a certain amount of loyalty to that stack. I try not to paint myself as a Java developer. I'm just a developer, but I like working in Java. And as far as being a teacher as well as a student, yeah, I mean, I feel like I get just as much out of helping people explore new ideas and learn things. I get as much out of that as I do being the student and having that beginner's mindset and just being willing to... I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling here. (laughs) Part of, for me... It's easier for me than I think it may be for some to sort of get over this hurdle of being willing to suck at something for long enough to really become a beginner and afford myself those learning opportunities. I think a lot of developers would do well to sort of be willing to step out of their comfort zones and be willing to suck at something for a while until you don't suck at it as bad. And there you have it. You've gone through learning Your brain has formed new neural pathways, and I think it's just a wonderful thing to work in a profession that affords us so many opportunities like that. So sticking in with Java Mm -hmm. and kind of bringing those ideas back into the Java land. Yeah. When you kind of introduce ideas back, Mm -hmm. how do you kind of bring those ideas back, or have you brought those ideas back to your coworkers? And kind of getting them on board and working with people who may or more likely may not be familiar with some of the ideas you've explored from other languages like Haskell or Scala or Scheme or any of those others you decide to touch into and bring those back and bring them to coworkers where they're willing and teach them about the concepts so it's not a battle of familiarity versus unfamiliar and this is weird but kind of like some of the strategies for here, let me show you how this works. How do you introduce that and keep that in the team so it's not just you off in your corner doing the weird, crazy things that people 
pretty much try to revert as soon as they get a chance to touch that code. Right. I guess one of the things that I'm blessed with is that you know I work in an organization that really encourages the kind of outward looking and learning. In fact, one of the things that we make a point to do every week is to stop down for one hour and just talk about things that we've learned or something that we found interesting. And so I and a couple other people have taken those opportunities to bring some of the more functional ideas and sort of tie them into our day-to-day work in Java. Most people are familiar with Guava by now, Google's commons library, if you will. And one of the things that they lean really heavily on is this idea of sort of your higher order functions like filters and transforms and maps and carrying those things out on Java collections or iterables or streams. It's sort of a low-cost way of introducing some of those functional ideas into your Java code. Rather than always reaching into your bag for a for loop to iterate over a collection in order to do something like a filter or a reduce, you use Guava's filter or reduce or transform functions to sort of eliminate that boilerplate. Now you say, okay, well... The way that you have to do that is one of the things that you hand to your filter functions is this nasty old instance of an anonymous predicate or function, which most people have bagged on Java for years for its lack of concision when it comes to anonymous inner classes. But one of the things that we told people to do is you know, rather than having the anonymous instance in line in your calls to filter or transform, hide that behind a method call. Methods have names. The thing that would make the filter expression more expressive is to have a name in there that describes what the filter is actually doing. And so we've had some success with that. Most of our Java-based applications now have quite a healthy dose of guava in there. And it's sort of a really cheap way to start introducing this idea of having more intention-revealing operations on collections. A lot of times we'll just grab an iterator and do our thing, but the machinery of doing the filtering and the mapping feels kind of boilerplate And Guava is sort of a nice way of helping to eliminate the boilerplate. And that's sort of a neat way to gently introduce some of those functional ideas into code bases that may not have seen them before or an audience of programmers that may not have seen that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was kind of getting there because I've heard of that and as well of things like writing certain styles of testing in a different language that's a little more functional. When you're on things like the JVM or the .NET platform where you're pulling in, maybe this is Scala because it reduces some of the boilerplate, or maybe this is maybe this is Groovy, or maybe this is Clojure, mm-hmm. or some of that stuff. Because so, I know a couple of people there with you, and again, as we said, kind of in the same circles, and I know a couple of the previous places, but you were also a consultant previously. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, when you go to a place as a consultant and you try and bring in ideas, you don't get to necessarily pick your coworkers. So I didn't know if there were any strategies and things like that for introducing as well for people who may or may not be as receptive on your team to certain different ideas. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough one. I guess the best advice that I could offer is to be gentle and be persistent. You're absolutely right in that some audiences won't be very receptive at all to even bringing in an extra jar dependency, even if it's only for tests. I can remember wanting to introduce something like Makito to make it easy to 
provide mocks in order to isolate a piece of code that you wanted to be able to test from its dependencies, which may be hard to spin up or reset their state or whatever. And it took a long time to convince people to sort of expand their horizons and see the benefits. I think the best thing that you can do is not to preach, but just to show. Proselytizing especially doesn't work on programmers, in my experience. As easy as it is for us to get caught up in religious wars, we don't want to be preached to or proselytized to. We would rather see and feel the benefits that you may be espousing rather than just hearing about them. And it's hard sometimes, too, because I get very excited when I feel like, hey, here's a tool or a practice that I found really helpful. I'm eager to share it with people. And sometimes my enthusiasm it may be interpreted more as an attempt at conversion rather than just a genuine desire to spread a little bit of knowledge and hopefully help people produce better software. I guess my message would be don't give up and be sure you're in it for the long haul because sometimes even what seems like tiny or trivial changes to us may not be nearly so trivial for somebody else. Yeah, I know we as a community are a very stubborn bunch, so when you try and come in and try and say, hey, you know what you're doing, there's a lot better ways to do it. Right. We tend to go on the defensive. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess there's conflict in both ways. And on the part of the message sender, you want to make sure that your message isn't interpreted as, I'm not saying that you don't know what you're doing. I'm not saying you're not smart. I'm saying, here's something that I found really helpful, and it may help you do even better, too. And there's some action to take on the part of the receiver, too, is we can get very defensive. And most of us are very proud of what we do. And we sort of, I had a a coworker one time saying that his programs were like his children, and he would protect them to the death. And I thought, well, you know, it seems a little extreme. I mean, it's certainly admirable that you want to do the best work that you can, but it doesn't mean that what you do is perfect, and it doesn't mean that it can't stand to be improved in some way. Because I think everything can stand to be improved in some way. I want to create software that's as good as I can make it. Do I succeed all the time? No, I don't. I'd like to think I succeed most of the time, but I know that there's always room for improvement. And so I guess... One bit of advice I would give to anybody is be willing to listen to honest feedback and be willing to act on it if it's something you feel like is worthy. How many languages have you kind of brought back in? Is Guava just the big one that you kind of bring into to the Java land and you pretty much leave the others alone except for the concepts that they bring and you just deal straight with Java? Or do you tend to try and take advantage of some of the other languages with the JVM? It sounds like you pretty much stick straight Java. For the most part, my work has been in just core Java. We have done a little bit of groovy work. It tends to be mostly for scripting and build automation and stuff like that. This is not to say that I wouldn't consider using other JVM-based languages, but I've just kind of found myself sticking with core Java to this point for the work that I'm doing. And I'm asking just to make sure I'm right, because it's leading into Java 8. Right. So Java 8 is starting to bring... From everything I've heard, and I've seen small little snippets about it, Mm -hmm. it is supposed to be bringing a lot of the nice functional concepts into Java, or at least into Java as best as it can for being the eighth iteration of a programming language and having to deal with backwards compatibility. But what are your lookings for or at from what you've seen with Java 8 and being able to bring functional ideas and concepts and 
learnings from other functional languages back into your work in a OO language where that OO language is starting to get some first class treatment of those concepts. I was really eager to see Java 8 released, if for no other reason than for the Lambda syntax. One of the things that makes a functional language so neat is that it's so easy to make functions. It should be, right? If it's a functional language, your currency is functions. That is how all work gets done. But sometimes, you don't necessarily want to have to come up with a brand new name for something. It's nice to just Lambda up something on the fly and turn it loose. We talked about before in Core Java, if you're using Guava or similar libraries, you're having to spin up instances of predicate and function interfaces. And if you're using the anonymous class syntax, you're in for a lot of noise, I guess, and not as much signal. So I was really interested to see how that would play with Java 8, with the idea that you can have this Lambda-ish syntax and get this automatic convertibility to an instance of a single method interface. My fiddling around with it so far tells me that the Java designers are under a lot of constraints and a lot of pressure to preserve backwards compatibility and stuff like that. But they mostly got this one right. One of the things that I had always been interested to do is to... I've fiddled with JUnit a lot, and one of the things that I think it should do is to get assertions, like the assert methods and the assumption methods, out of the core. Because really, there's nothing special about an assertion method. It raises assertion error if some condition doesn't hold true. That's it. And so there's really kind of this implicit contract between tests and the test runner. Anything that might raise an assertion error is an okay way to signal failure. And it doesn't have to be the assert methods in JUnit that do it. One of the things that we find ourselves doing to try to write expressive tests using core Java is to use Hamcrest and the assert that functionality. So rather than saying assert equals expected comma actual, we might say something like assert that actual comma, and then the second argument would be some matcher instance that knows how to deal with the expected value in some particular way. Matchers might be anonymous in our classes, or they might be named classes or hidden behind static method calls or whatever. And I often found myself wondering, it'd be nice if this matcher could just be a lambda. Rather than having to create matcher subclasses named or otherwise, it'd be neat to be able to just hand it this lambda that represents the thing that I want to test. And then I'd be done with it, and I wouldn't have to create a whole lot of extra classes. I could just kind of say, boom, here you go. The sad part, though, is that the matcher interface in Hamcrest is not what they call a SAM type, a single abstract method type. And those are the only types that are eligible for lambdas to be converted to instances of those types. And I wrote just a little assertion library that leveraged Java 8 predicates to say, this is the thing that specifies the condition that the value must meet, otherwise the test will be considered failed. I call it lamb spec, I guess, to reflect the idea that it's very lambda leveraged, but also uses some syntax that was kind of inspired by R spec. I say inspired, and maybe I should just say stolen from, but this is out on GitHub, and you can have a look at it. I thought the results were pretty positive. 
I was excited to see even something as seemingly innocuous as the Lambda sort of take on a new life, if you will, as being leveraged in a assertion library for unit tests. I'm very positive about that. I have not played nearly as much with streams or some of those capabilities, but just from a syntax perspective, from the perspective of trying to come up with expressive yet reasonably concise code, I think lambdas are going to be a big win for programmers. From what I remember, going back to Java after working in C Sharp and getting past C Sharp 3.5 right. and 3.0, so we had the link expressions, mm-hmm. the language integrated queries, which essentially gave what the groovy or the standard map reduced filter functions were. Mm-hmm. Went back and moved to a team inside the company for a little while that was on Java. Mm-hmm. And from what I can remember... Your functions were essentially, as you said, function interfaces. So you were stuck with creating an anonymous class that just had one method, essentially the escort in Steve Yegi's The Kingdom of Nouns. Kingdom of Nouns, yeah. That he references. But the biggest thing I remember going that back is like, well, I can kind of hack this to get a Lambda. But the biggest problem was that it didn't actually support any concept of a closure in the language. But it sounds like Java 8 is rectifying that part as well is that to a certain degree yeah it was a pain in the butt to have to declare any enclosing scope variables that you'd want to use in your anonymous inner class you'd have to declare them final the compiler does a little bit better job now in deciding okay here's this lambda and it's referring to variables outside of its definition and it seems like this thing is never getting reassigned that I can tell, therefore I'm not going to force you to declare it final. It has this notion of what it calls effectively final. So that's really helpful for writers of Lambda and users of uh, Lambda expressions. Another nice thing is that it can infer the parameter types to the Lambda to some degree. Java is statically typed. I prefer to call it manifestly typed. Types are manifest in Java. Every variable has a type, and the program needs to see it there. But one nice thing that I've seen in my Lambda exploration is that, to a certain degree, the types of the parameters to Lambda expressions can be inferred sometimes. So that cuts down quite a bit on the verbosity that you would otherwise have. You don't necessarily have to specify a type on a Lambda parameter when it's obvious from context what it should be. That's a real big win, too. And I think that'll help spur the adoption of the feature as organizations start running their programs on the Java 8 VM. Is it giving good support for our generic types with the Lambdas as well? Or is that something that they're still kind of working their way through? Because I I don't remember reading enough to be able to pull that out. Yeah, and, and I probably haven't stretched the limits of what can be done with that either. I can tell you that Java 8's predicate and function types are generic in the types of parameters that they take. And For my limited usage of them, there have been times when the types of the parameters to the Lambda, even though the SAM type has generic type parameters on it, a lot of times the parameter types can be inferred. And there are times when I do have to coax it with a manifest type, but I've been really pleasantly surprised with the level of inference that I've been able to get from my somewhat limited Java 8 explorations. I think they did a really good job. So based off all your dabblings... What are some of the things that are on your wish list of things that you could get back into Java that you think are nice from a bunch of the different languages that you've played with and messed around with? Because 
you're pulling in a quick check with your J unit. What are some of the other things you'd either like to try and dabble with yourself or like to see kind of brought back in and enhanced that would make Java extra extra nice in your opinion? I'd have to tell you that I can't think of anything in terms of language feature that I really wish I would have in core Java. I think the thing that I really enjoy a lot about Scala and Haskell is this notion of an algebraic data type and sort of being able to pattern match the idea of like an optional type where you have a none or a maybe something. I feel like that's one of the things that I enjoyed most about my Scala and Haskell explorations. But I feel like bringing that into the Java core language is a little too out there. Java and Haskell are really kind of different beasts when it comes to that and be a little bit much to try to add to the language. But it's a feature of those languages that I've enjoyed immensely. I wasn't sure if there were any other patterns because I could kind of see where you might be able to do a library for some of those types. But as far as the pattern matching, yeah, I could see where that could be a big win. Yeah. Bringing it into a language like Java. Yeah, it's interesting. I mentioned optional where you have a none and a maybe T. There actually is an optional type in Java 8. And it is generic. It's optional of T. And I find it interesting that it's supposed to be the cure-all for all your null pointer exceptions, yet I can say something like, optional of integer x gets null. Well, how does that help me? Anyhow, I'm looking forward to wider spread adoption of Java 8. And obviously, even though I'm not really doing a whole lot in terms of a advertising campaign or whatever, I'm eager for people to give JUnit Quick Check a spin and offer constructive feedback and make a contribution if they feel so moved. Just wanted to see, again, the big reason was to get someone who's working in an OO and really non-functional language by default and get the opinion of someone and not talking about functional languages and how it's used. And I think we did cover a good wide swath of things about that. Cool. And then you gave a good overview of what to look forward in Java 8 as well. So it sounds like we're getting close. So... Do you have any other things you want to plug? It sounded like you were kind of plugging the Coursera and some of those massive online courses. Do you have anything you want to plug just because you think it's neat, you think it'd be useful? Is there projects or affiliations or user groups you want to plug? And Yeah, I would definitely give a shout out to the Dallas area Java Mug, Java users group. There's lots of good speakers coming in every month. Improving Enterprises is the organization that host the meetings, and they do a great job with all of their user groups, Java Mug included. If you're a software developer, I would recommend affording yourself the opportunity to expand your mind a little bit with a MOOC like Coursera or edX. Right now, I just started taking design and analysis of algorithms class. This is kind of a refresher for stuff that I looked at a long while ago in school. I just felt like I kind of needed a refresher on. never hurts to Throw some new stuff at your brain and make it hurt for a little while, but ultimately come out hopefully thinking more clearly and logically. I guess that's about all I can think of for right now. What other Coursera courses could you recommend to people who are interested in looking at it and haven't really checked them out before? Definitely, if you are interested at all in functional languages, and especially if you've come from more traditional, I guess, Java OO background, definitely check out Coursera's course by Martin Odersky, who is the creator of Scala. I think it's called Functional Programming Principles in Scala. got a lot out of that. 
he, along with Eric Meyer and I think maybe somebody else, also offer something via Coursera called Principles of Reactive Programming. Dilip has taken this or was taking it. So heard good things about that. And it's sort of on my wish list for watching out for the next offering of that one. But really, even if you don't even necessarily have to take a course that's computer-related or math-related or whatever, there's just all sorts of info out there for the taking, for free. And all they ask is that you give a few hours of your week for a few weeks to check it out. One of the things that I think is really neat about the MOOCs, too, is you can be as active or as passive a participant as you want. If you don't intend to earn some sort of certificate of accomplishment for finishing the course, but just want to look at the lecture videos or maybe a couple of the homework projects, you're totally free to do that. And you haven't lost anything by spending that time. So you can dive as deeply as you want, or if you just kind of want to dip your toes in the water a little bit, then that's okay too. But all of it is welcome. How was the Scala course from your experience taking it? Was it more about Scala in general, and you have had to kind of ramp up on Scala at the same time, or was it kind of more generic where it was less of a Scala course and more of a functional course that used Scala as the backdrop? I think it was about half and half. I mean, there was quite a bit of Scala involved, but I would say that what I got of it was more of sort of decomposing programs in more of a functional way. If I were to, this was probably a year or so ago that I did this, and if I were to sit down and try to write you some Scala right now, I'm not sure how great it would be. But really, the important thing for me was just to sort of take some respite for a few weeks and just look at computation in a different way. And how would you accomplish something if you didn't have mutable state? Or things like algebraic data types and the pattern matching constructs in Scala. What does that even look like? How does it compare to structures that I'm used to seeing in my everyday work? I think it's definitely an exercise worth going through. Whether you intend to work with Scala day to day or are just kind of passing through and seeing what there is to be found. Where can people find you online and check you out if they want to follow you and keep up with what's going on and find out more about what you're doing? I'm P. Holser, P-H-O-L-S-E-R, on Twitter. That's my GitHub ID also, so you can see what's going on with my open source projects and the open source projects I follow. And I'll look to see you there. So I guess if anybody else has questions about how to bring some of those concepts back in that they're learning as well, they could probably feel free to reach out to you on Twitter as well and get some advice as a fellow Java person working to bring in the functional concepts and strategies. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm always happy to try to answer questions. I, I certainly don't have all the answers, but I'll have fun trying to find them with you. Sounds good. We'll make sure to put those links in the show notes with all the other things you've mentioned as well. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, I would like to thank Paul for giving us time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you today, Paul. Likewise. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.